Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. We're in Titus chapter 2 today. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. This is part 4 of a six-part series in Titus. You can find the first three parts at gbclive.org. There are no handouts today. I do encourage you to have your Bible open. We're really pretty much hanging out in those 10 verses. Uh, it be a quick reference to chapter 1, so I encourage you to have your Bible open. Feel free to jot down whatever helps. Uh, I'll give you a main idea, and then I've got three points today. The title of the sermon is Healthy Church. Titus chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to gather as your people today, to sing your praises together, to gather around your table together to hear from your word together. God, I pray that through your word, you would strengthen your people, that your spirit would work, <clears throat> that you would draw out sin in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would do your work through the word this morning. I pray you would give new life where there was no life before. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently in our neighborhood, a local contractor broke ground uh, on uh, some kind of structure. I don't know what it's going to be yet. It's a lot that was, uh, it's been vacant in our neighborhood for a while. Uh, I walked past it yesterday and uh, they got some footings poured and there's some skids of block just kind of sitting there. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but uh, like it's Duncansville. I'm excited to see what's going on, you know, like um, I could see it from my house. So as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the footings uh, being poured. If you've ever worked with concrete or you've ever seen wet concrete, uh, you know that you have to have something to form it, uh, something to shape it. Otherwise, it's just a big mess. Uh, if you just pour wet concrete everywhere and you have no form, 
then you just end up with something really heavy that you have to try to move. Um, so <clears throat> you make a form for whatever shape you need, uh, and then you pour the concrete in, and then it, it's formed to whatever, uh, whatever shape the form is. And you can actually end up with some, some pretty cool designs. There's all kinds of things you can do, uh, kind of like our uh, concrete wall out in the parking lot with the crosses in there. Uh, super cool to see what you can do when you have some intentionality and some form to it. So today, I want to talk to you about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is like a concrete form. It shapes the life of a healthy church to conform to the gospel. <clears throat> now, there are all kinds of things that can shape the life of a church, right? Certain programs can shape the life of a church, preferences, trends, personalities, deep pockets, and the list could go on and on, right? But all of those things result in unhealthy church. So here's the main idea, if you want to jot this down. It's the main idea for our text today. Sound doctrine shapes the life of a healthy church. Sound doctrine shapes the life of a healthy church. As I said, this is part four in this series, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the background of Titus and all of that. We've done all of that, and you can, uh, you can go back and listen to previous messages. Our text today starts with a conjunction, the word but, which automatically communicates something contrasting with whatever came before. So to see how this connects with where we've come from, we've got to go back to chapter 1, verse 9, which I said, you want to have your Bibles open. So Titus 1, verse 9, he, or the elder in this context, or the godly leader, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, so there are two reasons that elders, church leaders, must be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word, right? One is to give instruction in sound doctrine. Two is to rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine. So that's how elder, elders protect the flock. They, they do those two things. In the last sermon, which is verses 10 through 16, we focus on that second responsibility, rebuking those who contradict sound doctrine. And that section ended with a pretty stinging rebuke that Paul levied against the false teachers in Crete. In verse 16 of Titus 1, he said, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So in chapter 2, verse 1, which is our text for today, Paul's circling back around to that first responsibility of elders. He must give instruction in sound doctrine. And he's doing that with that word but, like that contrast. He's drawing a stark contrast between those who led people away from Jesus, false teachers, and those who lead people to Jesus, godly leaders like Titus in this context. So chapter 2 begins, but as for you, so don't be like the false teachers, Titus, and profess to know God, but then deny him by your works. Okay, don't, don't do that. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So sound doctrine means healthy teaching. 
right? So I talked about this a little bit last time. The word sound in the pastoral epistles, so First and Second Timothy and Titus, the word sound is a medical metaphor for health, like gospel health. So it's the gospel and everything that flows from it. So healthy teaching commends the gospel and strengthens the church. So the opposite of that then would be unhealthy teaching. Teaching that disrupts and divides. So unhealthy teaching distorts the gospel, weakens the church. Notice in verse 1, Paul doesn't say, teach sound doctrine. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's Paul's way of saying sound doctrine has implications for all of life, not just, okay, the nugget of the gospel truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Absolutely, that's the gospel. Sound doctrine is like everything that flows from that. Jameson's definition I've, I've mentioned before, sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Sound doctrine is like theology in action. Right? It's not just information, it's what do we do with it? And this is Paul's strategy for a healthy church in Crete. No leadership structures, no exciting programs, no church growth strategies, like, all right, Titus, here's what you need to do to get more people showing up, nothing like that. In fact, it's pretty, pretty bland <laughs> when you look at the healthy church plan in Titus, right? There's no buildings, there's no programs, there's no budgets. Don't misunderstand me. Buildings and budgets and programs are great. They're good. So thankful. I was thinking during VBS as we were having kids come in every night how thankful I am for the facilities here to be able to host something like that and have kids in here every night and all of the activity that goes on here. So, yes, absolutely thankful for what God has given us. But those aren't good ways to determine the health of our church. Right? We can have a wonderful building. We can have financial stability. And we can have a lot of programs happening and not be a healthy church. We can make the mistake of thinking that doing things makes us healthy. Just because we're doing stuff, right? That's kind of like saying, because you're eating a dozen donuts every day, that makes you healthy. You're like, uh, no. Well, I'm doing something, right? You should pick something else to do every day if you want to be healthy. I don't know that anyone would dispute eating a dozen donuts every day doesn't make you healthy. So doing something doesn't make us healthy, it just makes us busy. So we have to make sure we're doing the right things for the right reason which can look very similar to doing the right things for the wrong reason. We talked about that in the last section with legalism, right? The essence of legalism is you try to be godly by doing stuff. And it's good stuff in a lot of cases. But that doesn't work. You can't reverse engineer godliness. 
Godliness flows from the gospel. You're not godly based on what you do. So that gets a little tricky, right? How do we know the difference? If doing good things for the right reason looks really similar to doing good things for the wrong reason, because it's maybe the same things, how do you know the difference? Healthy church is all about who God is and what he has done for us, not who we are and what we do for God. What we do matters, okay, and you're going to see, we're going to see in this text today, what we do really matters. We talk a lot about what we do today, but not because God needs us to do those things. What we do matters because of what God has already done for us in the gospel, which is the communion table, (laughs) right? What we do flows from that. So healthy church then is all about the gospel, When the gospel takes root in our lives, godliness will be the fruit. Remember, godliness is gospel-fueled good works. Good works not fueled by the gospel is not godliness. That's how we know the difference. So that brings us back to our main idea. Sound doctrine shapes the life of a healthy church. In this passage, Paul gives specific instructions for five different groups in the church. And if you're like me, when you read a text like this, and maybe just even as we read it earlier, you already start to create check boxes in your head. You're like, hmm, which category do I fit in? How am I doing at that? Right? I'm going to encourage you to resist that temptation. Okay? Remember the main theme of Titus. God's grace in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. Right? That's like the whole theme of Titus. God's grace in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. Guilt doesn't lead to godliness. Shame doesn't lead to godliness. Obligation doesn't lead to godliness. Grace leads to godliness. All right, don't don't miss that. Because if we miss that, then we try to reverse engineer godliness, and we get burdened down. Christian, Jesus already took all your guilt on the cross. He experienced all of your guilt. He paid the penalty. There's no guilt left for you. He experienced shame for you on the cross. Now, any shame you experience should drive you to Jesus, not away from him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Shame has no place in his presence. We're not obligated to follow Jesus. That's legalism. We get to follow Jesus. That's grace. We're going to talk a lot in this text about things we should be and do. And the whole basis of verses 1 through 10 is the grace of God revealed in the gospel in verses 11 through 15. But that's the next sermon, so we're not going to go there yet. So, main idea, back to that, 
Sound doctrine shapes the life of the healthy church. So I hope you're asking the question, what does that look like? Because that's the question I ask when I'm working through this. So I've got three snapshots for you of sound doctrine shaping the life of the church. Keep in mind what a snapshot is. It's not exhaustive, not meant to be exhaustive, okay? You could likely pick up some more things, and there are other things that we won't talk about, right? So on Thursday, uh, we took a student ministry trip to Hershey Park, so we hung out at Hershey Park for the day, um, had a blast, loved it, uh, rode, rode a bunch of roller coasters, uh, rode Candymonium for the first time, uh, that might be my new favorite coaster. Um, how many of you ever rode a roller coaster? Okay, a lot of people. Almost every coaster you ride, there's a camera somewhere on that coaster that snaps a picture of you at the most unflattering time, right? Your face is all like contorted. You're like contemplating whether you're going to die or not at that particular moment. And they're like, hey, we snapped a picture of you. And then after you get off the ride, you can, you know, you can go see it. And then they charge you money if you want to buy that picture of you that it's super unflattering. Uh, I've never bought one of those. Um, Maybe I should one time just, just for fun. But the point here is that snapshot doesn't give you uh, the picture of the whole ride, right? Like, like it doesn't sum up the whole ride, but really what it does do is kind of gives you a pretty accurate kind of frame grab of what you might look in on at any point <laughs> during that ride. <laughs> might be that frame grab of whatever your face is doing at that point. It's not meant to summarize the whole ride, but it's fairly accurate if you would kind of look in at a given point. That's what these snapshots of sound doctrine are kind of like that. They don't say everything. Sound doctrine does more than just these things, and there are more things involved in a healthy church, but we're in our text today, so we want to see what's here. So here are the three snapshots of sound doctrine shaping the life of the church. So if, you, if you're taking notes, these are kind of the three uh, points. So I'll give them to you, and then we'll unpack each of them. Number one, Sound doctrine shapes our character. Number two, sound doctrine shapes our discipling. And then number three, sound doctrine shapes our witness. All right, so sound doctrine is shaping. Remember the concrete form. Shapes our character, our discipling, and our witness. All right, so let's take a look at snapshot number one. Sound doctrine shapes our character. Paul uses household relationships here, which is uh, super relatable, as a way of pointing out character that flows from sound doctrine. So he mixes order a little bit as to what would be traditional, but he, he addresses older men, older women, young women, younger men, and then bond servants or slaves, because in that day, uh, slaves would have been part of the household. So one of the beautiful things that I love about this passage in Titus and was excited to preach it is there's something here for any age, (laughs) all right? So there's something here for all of us to wrestle with when it comes to application. Sound doctrine shapes the kind of people that we are. We will not exhaust all of these things. Uh, We'll kind of hit a couple of points of application as we go, and I trust the Spirit will have something for you. Verse 2, <clears throat> older men are to be sober-minded. Read that as clear-headed, 
not given to extremes, especially in regards to alcohol. So the idea of sober-minded has a, has a, a, a specific thing connected to uh, extreme with alcohol. Dignified, read that as worthy of respect. Self-controlled, which is going to keep showing up. Read that as measured restraint. And then kind of a triad, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So healthy trust in God, love for others, and endurance or perseverance through adversity. So remember, snapshot, all right? So as to whether or not you fit in the category of older men, I'll leave that up to you to figure out if this applies to you. The Bible's not super clear uh, on a particular age for this, right? But it does seem to point to you've lived for a while, right? You've experienced some stuff. You've gained some wisdom. So here are a couple thoughts for the older men in our church. Live worthy of the respect of the younger men. Yes, younger men are to respect older men, but it's a two-way street, right? You've got to live in such a way that you garner respect. Don't be prone to extremes in any area of life, especially related to things like alcohol, things like that can control us, right? When it comes to the older men, we, there, there's, a, there's a sense of stability and wisdom that, that, that Paul is pointing to here. <clears throat> Perhaps you tend to be cynical or a little bit grumpy. Maybe remembering how things used to be and lamenting the fact that they're not that way anymore. Perhaps you feel that your usefulness has passed. Or maybe you're weary of giving yourself in service because you've been faithfully giving yourself in service for a long time. So here's a word for you. Our church needs the wisdom that only you can bring. You can model a long obedience in the same direction that somebody younger than you just can't model. You can show what it looks like to persevere in the midst of struggle and trial for years that someone else who's younger than you just simply can't. You can bring wise leadership when we need it most. Your commitment to the gospel matters much more than your age. Older men We need you to stay in the fight. Our church needs you to stay in the fight. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. So basically what what it's fitting for a woman who claims to be godly. So inward realities expressed outwardly. So authentic life is reverent in behavior. Not slanders. Don't gossip and tear others down. Or slaves to much wine. 
so not dominated by alcohol. Apparently, alcohol was a big issue in the first century, too, right? Older men, older women, okay? There's all the, all the leadership qualifications in the pastorals. There's caution about overuse and abuse of alcohol because it's something that controls us. So it's a characteristic here for the older women. Don't be a slave to that. Don't be dominated by that. And then they are to teach what is good. And I'll stop there for now because that next phrase takes us into the next group. So I'm going to stop here. And I'm not even going to venture a guess as to whether or not you fit the older woman category. All right? I'm just close my eyes. Um, no raise of hands. Certainly age is a factor, right? Just, just like the older men. But similar to that, the emphasis is on your maturity and your commitment to the gospel, not, not your age. So again, there's not a hard and fast, you know, this is when you become an older woman. That's not the way this is laid out. So a couple of points of application. Complaining about others does not characterize the godly older woman. Sound doctrine shapes your character by helping you see that you don't need to put others down to feel good about yourself. You too might be feeling like you are past your usefulness. Maybe you're experiencing feelings of loneliness or low self-esteem. Especially if you're a mama and your kids are grown and they don't need you like they needed you at one point. You can feel like maybe, maybe my usefulness is past. Can I remind you of something this morning? Christ is all the satisfaction that you need. Your identity and your worth is not found in your role as a mama or a wife. Profoundly important roles, okay, don't get me wrong. But who you are in Christ is who God sees you to be. And older women, you have a significant role to play in the body of Christ. And I'll talk about that when we get to discipling. So older women are to teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, there's that measured restraint again, pure, sexual purity, working at home, so the idea of managing household responsibilities, kind, showing consideration to others, and submissive to their own husbands, which is consistent with the rest of the New Testament, right? This attitude of submission to their husbands. So the young women have the most instructions in the passage. So if you're, if you're counting, there's seven of them here. And so I, I want to remind you, these are snapshots, right? Not exhaustive. It doesn't mean that there aren't other things older men and older women or younger men should be doing. For whatever reason, whatever the situation was in Crete, Paul saw the need to outline these particular things in relation to the younger women. So a couple of things here. First, uh, a word on that working from home idea. So there's a phrase there's working at home, okay, uh, which, which I would say lands probably a little differently in 2022 than it did in, in first century when, when Paul was writing, right? So, so you have to understand that in first century, 
Like, one of the only places to work outside the home for a woman was prostitution, right? So, uh, now, you, you had a few, right? You had some women in the New Testament, like you had, you know, Lydia, the seller of purple and whatnot. So, you had, you had some of that. But as a general rule, it was different culture, right? So, when you read this, don't read this as, you know, a woman shouldn't work outside the home. That's not what Paul's getting at here. He's not getting at the fact that a woman can't have a career, right? That's not what he's saying. So what he is getting at and what he seems to be emphasizing is even in the midst of that, so if you, if you are a woman who has a career, you have a job outside the home, even in the midst of that, that doesn't absolve you of one of the primary responsibilities of raising your kids to love Jesus, right? Uh, of, of raising your kids to, to know the gospel, to understand who God is. So by all means, work, have a career, but understand that raising your kids is not a you know, thing you do when you're not working, right? Like raising your kids is, is one of your primary responsibilities and something that um, moms can do in a way that no one else can do. So if God has given you a husband, maybe not kids yet, maybe you do have kids, don't, don't look for life beyond that, right? Don't be thinking, oh, man, if only I didn't, then I could. God has put you in that position for a reason. And if you find yourself kind of feeling like, okay, like now that I have kids, I've kind of lost that ability or that identity that your work doesn't define you, <laughs> okay? The gospel is what defines you. You know, you're going to see that thread ringing all the way through here. You are Christ's treasured possession. Young woman, he bought you with his life. That is your value and your worth. And it is holding on to that identity that is going to help you in the mundane tasks raising kids when it feels like... Not a mom, but I'm married to a mom, so. The work of raising your kids to follow Jesus is significant work. Perhaps you hear this this morning as a woman who's not married and doesn't have kids. Be assured, God does not view you as second rate. God knows exactly where you're at. He's planned where you're at. God doesn't view you as second rate, and neither does your GBC family. You are a vital part of the body of Christ in this place, and you bring a liveliness and a vitality unlike any other. So self-control and kindness shows the gospel to people around you. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men, and they only get one, because that's probably all they could handle, right? <laughs> to be self-controlled. Same word that showed up already, that measured restraint. I joke about it, they only get one, but the whole point, right? It's a snapshot, right? But doesn't the idea of self-control 
kind of address the younger man issues in patience and ambition and pride and selfishness and lust. All of those things that tend to plague younger men. Again, there's nothing about marriage or loving their wives here. It's not exhaustive. It's not saying those, those things shouldn't be there. Snapshot. So hear this, young man in our church. You don't need to wait to be an example of godliness. Titus was likely a young man setting an example for other young men. And he was to teach the older men and the older women as a young man. Timothy, Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Pastor Aaron talked about that a few weeks ago. Society wants you to think, you know, wait till you're 30 to kind of get rolling, you know. Teens, 20s, you can't really do. No. God calls you to take life seriously right now. God calls you to take your faith seriously. Care for the people around you. You want to be countercultural? That's countercultural. That's going to give you opportunities to speak about why you take life seriously and you care for other people because of who God is and what he's done for you in the gospel. The gospel gives you the power to overcome youth stereotypes and have kingdom impact now. So then that last group, verse 9, bond servants, and we won't, we won't spend a lot of time here because there's, there's not a good correlation to where we're at. But I'll read it and just, just offer a quick, quick note. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So I'll say this. Slavery in the first century, not the same that we usually think of when we think of slavery now, kind of in, in modern times. So different. Um, slaves a lot of times had high government rank. They had possessions. They had uh, ownership of things. Um, and so, so it was kind of a different scenario. Part of the household, part of the family. Um, but there was a distinct aspect in biblical times as well of slave was the possession of someone else. Okay, so there is an ownership thing, which is why I think the correlation to employee-employer thing that kind of uh, some people will make is not, not a great correlation. I don't know that there are too many of us that uh, are owned by our employers. We might feel like we are, um, but you know, we could walk away and um, we, we would not face consequences as far as ownership goes. So employer-employee, not a great correlation. There's, so, so here's why... Uh, make the point here, okay? Slaves reading this in first century have the ability to show the gospel in a way that free people did not, right? So by being submissive to their masters, by not stealing, by doing those things, they were showing the gospel to, in some cases, unbelieving owners, which makes not a lot of sense outside the gospel framework, right? You shouldn't like your owner, kind of a thing, uh, tense relationship there or however that goes. So how much more would their submission point to the reality of the gospel? They're free in Christ, even if they never win their freedom, right? So that's Paul speaking to that. So one final note on how sound doctrine shapes our character, and then we'll move on to snapshot number two. 
self-control shows up all over the place here. Emotions are a factor because we're people, but they don't control us. When our character is shaped by sound doctrine, we aren't ruled by our emotions. Self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's like the fruit of the Spirit working in our hearts. So, not only does sound doctrine shape our character, snapshot number one, which was the longest one, by the way. Uh, Snapshot number two, sound doctrine shapes our discipling. So in verse seven, Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So, how does Titus disciple? Set an example. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, with integrity and sincerity. Live what you teach, essentially. Teach sound doctrine and live it out. The whole context of this passage is modeling and teaching. So, you know, give me to pick one verse. Like, the whole thing is modeling and teaching. And we call this life-on-life discipling, like relational discipling. For the most part, this happens same gender, right? Men with men, women with women. If you notice throughout the passage, Titus is instructed to teach older men and older women, younger men, not the young women, right? Someone else is instructed to teach the younger women, that's the older women, right? So Titus is not to relationally disciple the younger women, no doubt for accountability and avoiding temptation and anything along those lines. Doesn't mean Titus isn't teaching corporately in the life of the church, because he certainly is. No doubt that's where most of the older women teaching is taking place as well. But here's what I was talking about earlier with that significant role that you as an older woman play in the life of our church. You can disciple younger women like no one else can. Showing them what it's like to live as a godly woman in 2022. In Hollidaysburg, PA. In GBC. I can't do that. Male pastors can't do that. Right? GBC, we believe the Bible teaches men should be pastors. Right? This is probably one of the most significant roles you could possibly play in a church to be an older woman discipling younger women. And the key idea that this is pointing to is discipling relationships in a healthy church cross generational boundaries. So you have older folks seeking out younger folks. You have younger folks seeking out older folks. It's by design. Okay, so for all of us, that are older, younger, whatever, what about our discipling relationships? So the gospel calls us to orient our lives around other people. That's uncomfortable. That's countercultural. That's inconvenient, to say the least. It's messy. This means more than just planned teaching times, right? This means we're helping people move. We're opening our homes to others. We're letting people see our marriage up close. 
We'll see how we parent our kids, how we mess up parenting our kids, how we need repentance, how we argue with our spouses. This means we're caring for other people's kids. This means we're teaching people how to check the oil in their car or how to bake a cake, how to manage a budget, go to the grocery store together, work on each other's houses, spend your time and energy for others, sharing our very lives. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul envisions a community here where older men and older women are teaching younger men and younger women, where younger folks are reaching out and asking advice from older folks, where older folks are setting the example for younger folks. Younger people are submitting to the direction of the older folks. Sound doctrine provides the content of our discipling, right? The gospel and everything that comes with it. The community of the church provides the context for our discipling. Where do these discipling relationships take place? Right here in this community. In these relationships. Notice I'm not primarily talking about plugging into a program of the church. I think it's great. I happen to lead a student ministry program of the church in which we try to have older adults discipling younger people. Right? So, so that's a good thing. I, I like that. But discipling is not limited to that. So if you're young, find someone to disciple you. If you're old, find someone to disciple. And if you're not sure which you are, do both. Somewhere in the middle. So if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while now, and you're not really thinking about helping someone else follow Jesus, not sure if you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because it's baked in to what it means to be a disciple. So that's snapshot number two. Sound doctrine shapes our discipling. So it shapes our character, our discipling, and then the final one. Sound doctrine shapes our witness. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 10. Three spots in this text where we see this. Verse 5, last phrase, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, last phrase, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, last phrase, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I sum it up this way. We make Jesus look good. That's how we are to live. Commending the gospel, lifting up Jesus, making him look good by the way that we live. And the beauty of how God has designed his church to operate is we do this with ordinary, everyday stuff. Things like submitting to our husbands, loving our wives, helping someone hang a shelf, Showing up at someone's baseball game, delivering a meal, 
watching someone else's kids for free. Normal, everyday things take on powerful gospel witness because of sound doctrine. So our life together as the church is meant to be compelling to those who are outside the church. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're physically in the church building today, but you're not part of our church. Perhaps you observed communion rather than participating. Perhaps you're just visiting. Perhaps you've never been here. I don't know. Here's what I do know. If you're not a Christian, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, you're under God's wrath. You stand condemned by a holy God for eternal punishment. We don't want that for you. One of the reasons GBC is a church is because we don't want that for you. There's good news. You don't have to stand condemned. Much of what we've been talking about today is true of Christians because we believe the gospel. The gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he doesn't count our sins against us because of the work of Christ. God wants a relationship with you, friend. Sin wrecks that. We're all born sinners, sinners by choice. So we stand condemned apart from a substitute. Jesus is that substitute. He paid our penalty. He died for us in our place. He came back to life to show us power over sin and death. This is really good news for those of us who are condemned, who are sinners. We're saved sinners now. We want you to be part of that too. So what do you do with that news? How do you respond to that? I'll let you in on a little secret if you're not part of our church. We want our relationships within our church to be so compelling to you that you're like, why are you guys like that? If we don't have a little gospel crazy in our relationships, then maybe we're not really understanding how sound doctrine fuels our witness. We're not really understanding the gravity of the gospel and how it affects all of life. So as I close, it's my prayer that GBC will be this kind of compelling community that allows our character and our discipling and our witness to be shaped by who God is and what he's done for us. Sound doctrine shapes the life of a healthy church.